So we see these two twin themes showing up again and again in this letter. Paul wants the Ephesians to know that they are secure in the grace of Jesus. For what purpose? For the purpose of glorifying God with their lives. And that is why we exist as a church. The truth of the matter is, you never quite arrive, do you? If we're being honest, there has never been a time in our lives, and there won't be until Jesus returns or until we die and he takes us to be with God, that we will ever be fully satisfied with who we are. We will always have limitations. We will always struggle with sin and independent rebellion. We will always struggle to believe the good news of Jesus, that God is for us in Christ, and we will often choose other paths. We will often give in to our idols. And so it does us well, though I believe what I said earlier is true, that you are characterized as a body of people, as faithful, as depending on God in Christ, the Spirit that characterizes you, and yet we have so far to go. And so what do we need? We need to be reminded that we are called to worship God with all that we are. That is the calling that he has placed upon us. This is the purpose of our redemption. But by what means can that continue on? How do we know that we can make it? Well, it is because of the grace of God. So the obedience to which he calls us still today, the growth that all of us still need, the tension that we feel inside of us that though we aren't who we were, we are not yet who we want to be, we are not without hope. We are not left to ourselves The gospel is for every day. And so Paul unites these thoughts in this letter. This is not just for a small group of people two millennia ago. It is for us today. And so I say to you, the people of God, that you are indeed secure in Christ. And yet he has called you to worship him with all that you are worth. And we will see that again today in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Let's read together. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances. He might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. May God bless to us the reading of his word. Paul was a Jew, but Paul primarily had been called by Jesus to take the gospel to the Gentile world. Paul was well equipped to do this because Paul, though ethnically Jewish, had been raised in a Gentile and cultured world. Paul bridged the gap well, and this was important 
because Paul understood that Christianity was not just some offshoot of the Jewish religion, it was indeed its very fulfillment. And so Paul was transformed as a former sinner, in fact, one who destroyed Christians, instead to be one who worshipped the one true God through the Messiah, Jesus, and would take the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul spent his life, and in fact, Paul gave up his life. He was murdered himself for doing just that, for taking the gospel to the Gentiles. But because he wrote primarily to a Gentile audience, he wanted them to understand their roots and where they were headed. So Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 16 begin to demonstrate to us the makeup of this Ephesian church. It was primarily Gentile, though almost certainly had Jewish believers in it. It was Paul's custom whenever he would go to a new city to first go to the synagogue, the place where the Jews worshipped. This was because he could gain a hearing there. Because Christianity was not some brand new religion, it was the fulfillment of all the old covenant promises, the Old Testament promises given to the Jews. And often some of those synagogue worshipers, those Jews, would be converted and form the nucleus of a new church. But because these churches were found in cities that were primarily Gentile, by and large the converts would be that. They would be Gentile. So you had churches that were mixed up, mixed up ethnically, mixed up in their religious roots. So Paul understands that this was a somewhat cosmopolitan church, and because of that, there could often be hostility that would arise between these two ethnic parties. Interestingly, throughout Paul's writings, and not just here in Ephesians, in books like Romans, Galatians, we understand that there was often tension between these two parties in the ancient world. Paul wanted them to worship together in peace and unity. But perhaps just as importantly, because by and large this audience would have been primarily Gentile, Paul wants to remind them of where they came from, who they formerly were, and what had happened to them. We really already saw this in chapter 2, and so in some ways Paul continues the theme He began chapter 2 by reminding these believers that at one time they were dead in their trespasses and sins. This was their former condition. In fact, they were by nature children of wrath, we see in chapter 2, verse 3. That was their trajectory. They were headed toward wrath, toward destruction. Why? Because they were willful sinners. But as we saw in chapter 2, verse 4, God intervened. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Then what did he do? Verse 6, he raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So here's the idea. Formerly, we were willful rebels, deserving of the wrath of God. But what did God do? He he intervened. He stepped in. 
And by sheer mercy and by grace, he called us to himself, rescuing us, and then determined that we would dwell with him for eternity, sharing in an inheritance with his son. Why does Paul go to such great lengths to remind the Ephesians of who they were? We see that again today in the first two verses of our section. He reminds them of who they used to be. You might think that Paul's just being a killjoy, just trying to, to ruin their joy, helping them to once again step back into the reminders of, of who they once were in some sort of gleeful way. I don't think that's really the point. Paul wasn't a masochist. Paul wasn't just trying to help them feel bad about themselves. No, Paul wanted them to understand how, how great the glory of the gospel was, how, how great the grace was that they had been given. And truly, the only way that we can understand the depths of our salvation, what it took to rescue us from sin, is to remind us of, of who we once were. And so we would do well to, from time to time, remember who we once were. It not only demonstrates why we so desperately needed salvation, it often helps us understand some of the inclinations that we still have. That is to say, why we still struggle with sin. Because though we have been freed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, in other words, we don't have to suffer eternally for our sin if we trust Jesus. Likewise, we don't have to sin anymore if we have trusted Jesus. Yet, the presence of sin still remains. So Paul wanted the Ephesian believers to understand that there's a reason for that. At one time, you were by nature sinners. You had no power to stop and you were headed toward an eternal unspeakable penalty. But Christ has eradicated that and yet we still struggle with it. So Paul reminds them of, of who they once were to call them to thanksgiving, to thankful gratitude for who they have now become, but also in a way to help them understand why they still struggle the way they do. And so I think in verses 11 through 12, Paul is saying to these Ephesian believers, and by extension to us, it does us well to consider our former lost condition. I think by implication, this is the point of verses 11 through 12. So he says in verse 11, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the uncircumcision, by the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That sounds pretty dismal. So Paul calls these Gentile believers to remember who they once were. Let's, let's talk about some of the specifics of these verses. He calls them to remembrance, to, to recall. They were Gentiles in the flesh, ethnically. They were called the uncircumcision by the circumcision. It's a bit of an awkward phrase. What Paul is saying here is that the Jews saw the Gentiles as outsiders. The Jews who had been circumcised by hands, quite literally they had the males of the tribe, the males of ethnic Israel had their foreskin removed to demonstrate a specific purpose. We see in verse 12 that these Gentiles were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And the idea is that the Jews were not alienated from God. 
but the Gentiles were alienated from God and Israel. What was it about circumcision that demonstrated this idea of non-alienation, of belonging? Now, I must say, parenthetically, that this is a bit of an uncomfortable little topic, but it's biblical, so we have to deal with it. Why did Jewish males have their foreskin removed? What was the point of it? Was it for hygienic purposes? Was it to distinguish them from the tribes around them? Well, by and large, and most importantly, the the idea of this physical circumcision was to demonstrate an, an inward reality that those who were born with hard hearts, those who were born separated from God, and all sons of Adam and Eve have been, that God had stepped into time and space and offered himself in covenant relationship to a group of people. So circumcision was really more about the inside, the heart, than it was about the outside, the flesh. It was a physical and truly painful reminder that sin is awful and sin separates us from God. That left to ourselves, we will maintain hard, stony hearts, alienated from the life of God. But God, in His great grace, has offered Himself to people, offered to replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. He has offered Himself so that He might relate to people once again, rescuing them from sin, renewing them to Himself. And the Old Testament is the story of a group of people who had those privileges. And this physical reminder, though it did distinguish them from the people around them, it was a physical reminder that they had been once again brought back into fellowship with God. But by and large, their neighbors around them did not do this. And so the Jews were very proud of their national identity, of their status of this physical reminder which distinguished them, which made them distinct from the people around them. Unfortunately, and this is not really for today, often that merely was just a physical thing for them. For the most part, as you read the Old Testament, Jews, though circumcised, did not worship God with their whole hearts. For very many of them, it was just a physical thing, For very many of them, they did not humble their hearts. They did not have tender hearts toward God. They had hard hearts toward Him. And they looked down their long noses at the Gentiles around them. And yet this was a great privilege. It was a sign of favor. And so the circumcision, the Jews would remind the non-Jews, the Gentiles, very often that they were not the people of the covenant promise. We see in verse 12 that, Not only were the Gentiles not circumcised, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They did not get to participate in the blessings of the covenant people. And they were strangers to all the covenants of promise that God had given to the people of Israel. And to make this very simple, the covenants of promise were things that God did on behalf of the people, these sinful Jewish people, to bring them back into relationship to himself. They were wanderers from God. They were not seeking after God, but he called them to himself and 
and made relational promises to them, covenants with them, that he would rescue them and make of them a great nation and forgive their sins and show them great blessing. The covenants were God's way of showing that he would demonstrate to his people great and lasting promises, often despite the fact that they would not be faithful in return. Many of the great covenants of the Old Testament are what we call unilateral. That is to say, whether or not Israel would be faithful in return, God would keep covenant with his people. It was, it was one person working. It was, it was unilateral. Because God knew that if covenant faithfulness, if, if covenant relationship was dependent upon sinful people, that everyone, including these people of promise, including these circumcised people, would fall away. Because humanity left to itself will rebel against God inevitably. So God made unilateral promises to them that he would rescue them. But he wouldn't just rescue them. He made promises eventually that that others would be blessed because of them and through them. So please turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Marty read this passage for us earlier, and we won't read the whole thing again, but I do want to hit a couple of highlights. Genesis chapter 12, we find the calling of a man named Abram. We found him briefly introduced at the end of Genesis chapter 11. Abram came from a land of pagans. Abram came from a land of people that did not worship Jehovah, Yahweh. But God calls Abram to himself in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And so the Lord, this is Yahweh, says to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. God makes Abraham three promises. I will make of you a great nation. I will give you a land in which your nation can dwell. And through this nation, in this land, I will bless the entire world. So it's interesting that way back at the beginning of the Jewish people, and this is it, this is what we're reading here, Abraham was the was the father of the Jewish people, that there were promises made not just to the ethnic Jews that would come from Abram, but to a world beyond them, to, in fact, the entire world. Turn with me now, please, to Romans chapter 9. We get to see the fulfillment of this promise in Paul's writing to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 9. So as we saw in Genesis chapter 11... Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man who is not worshiping him to him, to worship him, and makes him great promises that through this man, through this man named Abram, he would create a people, it would be called the Israelites, the Jews, the Hebrew people, and he would give them great covenant promises, but, but through them would bless not just their own ethnic identity, but, 
the world. And so in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. What's Paul saying here? Paul is very concerned for his ethnic people, the Jews, because by and large they had not submitted to Jesus Messiah. They are Israelites, Romans 9, 4, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Let's pause here for a moment. Why did God single out the Jewish people? You could look at this and say it's unfair that he did that. On the other hand, you could look at it and say it's not fair that God rescued anybody. Because what would it cost to rescue anybody, Jew or Gentile? It would cost the life of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. The most unfair thing that has ever happened is not that God singled out the Jews. The most unfair thing that has ever happened, the most treacherous sin that has ever occurred, the greatest injustice that humanity could imagine, that the Son of God would take on flesh and be murdered. That is the most unjust thing that has ever happened. And that helps us understand why God picked the Jews, why he singled them out. Because through them would come the Christ, we see in Romans chapter 9, verse 5. This is why God primarily singled out the Jews. Now certainly he wanted to display his glory in a dark world. And so he takes a people out of slavery in Egypt, takes them to their own land, despite the fact that they're still very sinful and very rebellious. I mean, they didn't go very willingly. Most of them wanted to go back to Egypt and submit themselves to slavery again. Yet God shows generational faithfulness, bringing them into the land. And that didn't last very long because generationally, again and again, they rebelled against God. But he wanted to display to the world around them, not just in the surrounding region, but but through their story and history, that he was faithful. That he had not just abandoned them. God had always done this. When God destroyed the world in the flood, he, he preserved a family alive. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, he forgave them and promised redemption. Against the backdrop of human sinfulness, which shows up again and again and again, God keeps showing mercy, and, and the people of Israel are that. They're, they're a sign of God's mercy to the world, and, and through this people, he wanted to proclaim how great he was, that he was powerful. And that he was kind. So he gave them a law. A law which would distinguish them from the people around them. And a law which would prepare them for something greater to come. Because despite the fact that they've been given all kinds of laws and how to sacrifice and, and how to worship religiously, they still turned from God. Their hearts were hard. As we've already said, despite the fact that their flesh had been circumcised, their hearts hadn't. So the greatest purpose in singling out this people is that so one person would be born. 
And herein we find the purpose of the singling out of the people of Israel. That the promises of Genesis chapter 12 to Abram, that not only would God build a nation through him, but through that nation bless the world. How did that happen? It happened through Jesus Messiah, through Jesus Christ. And so, though God had many purposes for the people of Israel to display His glory and His power, His presence on the earth, most of all, Paul wanted to bless the entire, or God wanted to bless the entire world through the coming of the Messiah through this ethnic people. You could think of the people of Israel as a bit of an incubator. A people that, though they were given great and precious promises, covenant renewal by God, they didn't, they didn't hang on. They, they, they didn't show themselves to be faithful. But through this people that understood that there was one true God, who made all things, who was full of power, and to whom the entire world owed their worship, he would bring a rescuer, a redeemer for them and for the entire world. And we see this moving on in Romans chapter 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So Paul's concerned that by and large his people, his ethnic Jewish brothers and sisters, have not turned to God. But he says in verse 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Through Isaac, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, verse 8, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. This is the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12. It's the fulfillment, though we did not read it today, of Genesis chapter 15. God takes Abram out and shows him the night sky and says, if you can count these stars, you can count your offspring. And each star that Abram saw was not just representative of an ethnic Jew that would come from him, but, but of the entire world that would be blessed through him. And more specifically, through his greater son that would come, the one who would rescue him, Jesus Christ. And so we find in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, that it would do us well to consider our former lost condition. Abram was lost. God rescued him. Israel was lost. God rescued them. We Gentiles were lost, and God rescued us. The end of verse 12 paints a very dark picture. Formerly, we were without hope, and without God in the world. That, that was our condition. That was the indictment upon us. And so once again, if we're going to understand the glory of redemption, the beauty of salvation, if we're going to be a thankful people that appreciates our own rescue accomplished in Christ, we have to understand what we were rescued from. And I think though this is a minor note in the text, it bears repeating that it helps us understand why we still struggle as we do. We were, we were at one time the very enemies of God without hope. And so as we still struggle today, we remember what we once were. But, but there's a reason why we have hope. And against this backdrop of darkness, remembering who we once were, 
Paul strikes the major note of the text, and that is that through his sacrificial atonement, Jesus has reconciled us to God and one another. Verses 11 and 12, dark backdrop. So that Paul could now, in verses 13 through 16, show us our glorious salvation. So that against the darkness of who we once were, our former condition, the light of grace would shine. And so once again in verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the idea, this is the important theological concept of reconciliation. We were enemies of God. Let's look together, please, in Romans chapter 5. Just as a bit of a philosophical and interpretational point of teaching for a moment, we turn around a lot in our Bibles as we gather together so that you will see that there is great unity in the Bible so that you can connect dots It's important for you to be able to do that as a good Bible student of your own, to see themes that show up again and again. So that's why we ask you to turn around a lot so you can see these themes showing up in various points in the Bible and you can put the whole story together. But this idea of formerly being enemies of God, of needing reconciliation, is explained nowhere better than in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. We were formerly not at peace with God. We were, we were the enemies of God. Verse 6 explains this. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's an indictment upon who we were. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that... We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Romans chapter 5 proclaims to us two important connected thoughts. That we were saved from God by God. We were formerly under his wrath, Romans chapter 5 verse 9. We saw this in Ephesians chapter 2 as well a couple of weeks ago. How were we rescued from God? From the wrath that we deserve for our sinful rebellion? We were alienated from the life of God. We were without hope in this world. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. How did that get accomplished? Through Jesus Christ. We were saved from God by God. That might seem elementary to you, but that is a shocking and fundamental thought. It is at the heart of Christianity that because of our sin, we deserve the wrath of God. But God himself remedied this. 
I think there's this popular notion in religion out there, and in Judeo-Christian religion as well, that God set the world spinning and made a bunch of laws, and that we are called to keep those laws and, and crawl our way back to Him. And that once we do that, He'll, he'll stop cold-shouldering us, He'll stop being passive-aggressive with us, And then he'll see our efforts and then he'll accept us and and bring us back to himself. The problem with that is that's just not biblical at all. According to Romans chapter 5, according to Ephesians chapter 2, that is not our condition. We cannot and will not seek for God. We were dead. God had to intervene and he did. What did we deserve because of our sin? Our rebellion against this one who did set the world spinning, who made all these laws. We deserve his wrath. But Jesus has rescued us by giving himself, by by taking the wrath of God. And, And see, that's the extension of this gospel idea that we have to pause at for just a moment. How can the enemies of God be rescued? Someone's got to take a punishment. And the beauty of the gospel, the wonder of the gospel, is that the most unjust thing that ever happened, the murder of the Son of God, was also the most gracious thing that could have ever been conceived. For in the gospel, these two twin thoughts are held together. That humanity deserves God's wrath, but Jesus took it instead. And that by doing so, we could be reconciled to God. Turn with me, please, once again to Ephesians chapter 2. In Christ Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians 2.13, we who were once far off, us Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is pretty gory. This is violent. This is, this is not pretty picture. It's why we Christians are not just people of Christmas, we are people of Easter. That the one who was born into a manger would, would grow into a man. And he would not just teach us how to live together. He wouldn't just give us kind ideas. He wouldn't just be an example of, of peace and reconciliation. no. To really achieve reconciliation, it would take more than philosophy. It would, it would take more than influence. It would take the sacrifice of his own life. And so the unspeakable happened. The Son of God allowed himself to be crucified in our place, in our stead, that we might be brought back to God, Jew and Gentile alike. The beginning of verse 14 is a beautiful phrase. For he himself, Jesus, for he himself is our peace. He doesn't just offer us peace. He doesn't just teach us about peace. He doesn't just show us the path of peace. He is the peace. He is the one who brings us back to God through his own body. And what has he done? He's not just reconciled us to God. He's reconciled us to each other, verse 14. He's made us both one, Jew and Gentile alike. And he's broken down through his own body, through his flesh, 
the dividing wall of hostility between us and God and between us and each other by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We, we, we glimpse back at the beginning of the story often in our teaching here because it gives us roots to help us understand who we are and, and why we are the way we are and, and why God did the things he did in human history. So, so let's glimpse once again back at the roots of our story. When Adam and Eve broke the law of God, they were, they were alienated from God. They immediately died. They immediately were separated from God. But, but you see right away in Genesis chapter 3, as we glimpse back at the roots of our story, that their very relationship began to sever. They blamed each other. They were ashamed to be in each other's presence. And, and you see this in the next chapter in Genesis 4 because, because one of their offspring kills the other. And isn't the story of humanity not just a story of alienation from God, but alienation from one another? For even the most intimate of relationships seems to always be in danger of being torn in two. What happened when sin entered the world? Division. Division from God. Division from one another. And we feel that deep down in our hearts. We see it all around us. It's going on in our nation right now. This is not the only time it's ever happened. We are often guilty of not understanding our history. We have been alienated before in our country and we'll be alienated again. But my brothers and sisters of different ethnic backgrounds who have very different stories, we have the opportunity as the church of Christ to reveal to the world around us, to, to preach to the world around us what unity looks like. That it isn't about religious background, it's, it's not about the color of our skin. It's not about our differences. It's about our unity in Jesus. And right now, in our nation, there has never been a time where the world needs to see what reconciliation between God and man and between man and man looks like ever more than now. And we get to proclaim that. The church becomes the place where hostility between God and man is done away with. The church becomes the place where reconciliation between man and man is done away with. And sadly, as we look back at the history of the church, that has often not been the case. And the truth of the matter is, when we get the gospel wrong... When we make reconciliation with God something to be achieved by human merit, inevitably what happens is that humans, people, are torn apart as well. The church is often the place where segregation and division is most commonly seen. And I think this is due to the fact that we forget the gospel as you look at the mainline denominations of Protestant Christianity or just 
Christianity generally over the past 2,000 years, it seems like an inevitable trend that people forget the gospel. The great denominations that grew out of the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago this year have by and large forgotten the roots of the movement, forgotten the roots of the idea, the central idea of of how a man, how a woman can be right with God, how, how they can be justified. More than anything else, the Protestant Reformation recovered the idea that humans can be reconciled to God, can be justified by God, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. That was the central beating heart of the Reformation. What has happened to most of the denominations that came out of that? They don't believe the gospel anymore. They don't even talk about it anymore. So was it any surprise at all that when alienation from God and its remedy in the gospel, exclusively by grace through faith in Christ alone, when that is discarded, is it any surprise at all The division with people becomes a major problem as well. What is the only thing that can heal our hearts and help us be connected intimately to those around us, especially those who are different from us? And this is more than just people of different skin colors and ethnic backgrounds. It's different personalities, different perspectives, different gifts. What keeps us unified in the church of God? It's the gospel. We can come up with clever slogans here. We can remind you of our church philosophy. We can create programs. But the truth of the matter is, if you do not embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, do not expect that the fabric of your relationships will stay intact. Do not expect that the people around you will remain in harmonious relationship to you. What is the remedy for our relationships with people around us? It's the gospel. If you really think about it, this is the way it's always been. There is a great axis in the human condition. When the vertical relationship with God is restored as it should be by the gospel of Jesus Christ, The horizontal axis is in proper place. But when this collapses, so does this. By what means are we reconciled to God? It is through Jesus Christ. These laws which formerly condemned us and kept people separated from one another have been abolished, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. This doesn't mean that Jesus says the law wasn't important. In fact, Jesus says he came to fulfill the law. This word could be translated annulled or made ineffective. Jesus annulled the law. It's the penalty that was resting over us. He himself took the penalty and then thereby took the penalty away from us. So when you trust Jesus, you can be reconciled to God. He took the penalty for you. He suffered in your place. He shed his blood for you to reconcile you to God. He killed the hostility that you had with God. And now once you, 
rest in the reconciling love of Jesus and are once again connected in vertical axis to God, you can be restored and therefore have that horizontal axis in the place that it should be. Do you want peace with God? Jesus is your only hope. Do you want peace with each other? Jesus is your only hope. And so I call you today to remember who you once were. It would, it would do you well to remember. But I call you also to rest in the grace of Jesus, to trust in him. And by this, through this, have peace with one another. And I would say to you also, if you find yourself here today and you do not have peace with God, you cannot achieve it. You cannot work your way to God. Turn to Jesus by faith. As we saw in Romans chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, by grace we are saved through faith. Rest in Jesus. Stake your claim in him. Put your trust in him. Then you will find reconciliation with God then you will find reconciliation with people. This is a process. Justification is a one-time event. We are declared not guilty in Christ. But the process of transformation, of relating to God in harmony and to one another in harmony, that's a process. That's why Paul wrote this letter. Paul wrote this letter to remind the Ephesian believers who they were. And by implication, to call them to faithful obedience, to continue to break down the walls of hostility that naturally rise up between us, and because of the gospel, knock them down and love each other faithfully and patiently with understanding. I think also by implication, because God has done this in Christ, there is a great missional call upon us as well. God loves the nations, and He has sent His Son. In keeping with his promise to Abraham to take the gospel to all. Jesus said this at the end of his life before he ascended back to heaven. He says to the disciples in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What are the marching orders for the church? to take the reconciling message of Jesus to all the nations that they once again might be connected to God and to each other. And it is not ironic at all that that axis is the shape of a cross. Let's turn together to Revelation chapter 5. I will not take time to read all of this, but I do want to point out a couple of verses. What is an implication of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16? That we will take this gospel of reconciling peace to the world. We see in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, John has a vision of the eternal state. This great company in heaven sings a new song, saying, Worthy are you, the Lamb of God, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. In Revelation chapter 21, we see beginning in Revelation 21, 22, 
John sees no temple in the city, this, this heavenly Jerusalem that's come down to the new earth. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The temple was the, the symbol of God's presence with Israel. But in this united world of redeemed peoples, there's no need for a temple anymore because God will be there. The city, verse 23, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. Its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day. The nations are there. Chapter 22, verse 1, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No president, black or white, Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, can heal our nation or fix our world. Only Jesus can do that. And that's why we send missionaries. We send our money. That's why some of us should go to take the reconciling message of Jesus the Messiah to the world that God has reconciled them to himself in his Son and is reconciling them to each other. We will spend eternity as reconciled, rescued worshipers together worshiping the Lamb. And so, it does us well to consider our former lost condition. And through his sacrificial atonement, Jesus has reconciled us to God and one another. Let us hope in the gospel. Let us display the mercy of God to those around us, even those who are so very different. And let us use our talents of time and treasure and resources to take the gospel to all, the reconciling peace of Jesus. Let's pray.